everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Sierra and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey, everybody. How are you all doing out there? It is a beautiful Monday here in North America, and I, don't, I always get the times wrong. It might still be the middle of the night in Australia, and, and I know there's going to be people on here from, from that part of the world, but it is, it is the middle of the day here in Colorado. Our guest, Scott Mann, is in the East Coast. It's a couple hours later his time. We've got Mark in Bangladesh, and Mark is about 11 hours different. And Areeb is also in Pakistan, and it's about 11 hours different for him. Are you guys on the same time right now, Mark and Areeb? I can't remember. Uh, my time zone is uh, 12 hours different from me, and Areeb is it's 11. 11 right? I think, yep, I'm 11. Yeah, 11. Yeah. So we're all over the world at all different times. I'm going to ask Mark and Areeb because they're usually hotter. What, what's the high going to be today, or what was the high yesterday, in the 30s? 41 here, Celsius. 41. Oh, <laughs> wow. Those guys are boiling. <laughs> yeah, I was telling Scott, I was like melting. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and Scott has already told us that it's, what did you say, Scott? What's the temperature today? It's about 16C here today. Beautiful. That's nice. Yeah. So, well, let's just go at it. We are ready to get started. We have Scott Mann as our guest with us here today. And as you just heard, Scott's at 16 degrees and in city and in Pennsylvania. Scott, say hi to everybody for us. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, well, thank you for being here. And, you know, I already caught it. He, he's got the, 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 what we call the camera's turn today. He's the guest where he is so used to being the host. And even as he said that, thank you for joining us. It was just like being a host. It was awesome. Um, and uh, so, Scott, tell, I don't remember exactly. Tell everybody how we met. Did I reach out to you? Did you reach out to me? And it's been several years, but do you remember? I think somebody recommended that I get in touch with you about this idea of ecolonomics. And then I sent you an email, and it's all and that kind of started the ball rolling. And we scheduled that first interview, and we've been in touch ever since. I think it was yeah. 2012 or 2013, so it's been some time. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it was one of those two years, and and I actually, when when we did the the episode with you after that, I I have a a live meeting with our staff and our interns and everything, and we actually used that for one of our staff meetings. We played the um, played the podcast, and so the whole group got got into it then, and and so I think a whole bunch of them are now listeners, and so it's been very cool. So let's back up even further. Tell us how you got into the podcasting arena, and and give us whatever you think is is useful information for that history. All right, I'll try to be brief with everything, but being a storyteller and doing the show, I I like to talk at length sometimes, but it really all Nothing began. All right, good. Yeah, corral me a little. Um, it all began when I was in college, so I did um, college radio. I was a DJ for a number of years and just enjoyed it. Really liked being able to spin late at night, get the phone calls in from people when they were doing requests and talk to them, 
and then that was in the late 90s. It was 98 and 99 I was doing the DJ thing. And it was around that same time that I also discovered permaculture. And then, like so many things, life went separate directions. Got out of school, was going um, into the working world, practicing IT, and then eventually had this opportunity finally then in 2010 to take my permaculture design course. And as I was taking that, I realized that I wasn't super great at growing food or gardening, but because of my previous work in IT and then being a radio DJ, it just kind of made sense to try my hand at podcasting. And around the same time, um, Jack Spierko, who runs the Survival Podcast, I had been a moderator on his forums for a long time, and he had done a series, I don't know if he still runs it anymore, called Five Minutes with Jack. And he was just like, look, podcasting is amazing. It's pretty simple to get involved with. Grab yourself, you know, Audacity, um, software, a decent microphone, and give it a shot. And so I just kind of started running the podcast kind of as a way to write my own permaculture education. I started the show the same week that I graduated with my permaculture design course back in October of 2010 and been rolling ever since. Super. Yeah. And um, how have you, uh, how would you say what you do today just broadly is different? I see in the picture we have up here a microphone. You're probably using something different today. But what are, what, what are some just things quickly that hit you hit your head, whether it's technology-wise, whether it's what you've learned and different ways you do interviews, uh, a couple things that are just different today because you've become a little more wise? The two biggest things that have changed is that my technology's gotten a lot better. And back when I was doing IT, a lot of it was about, and being a somebody who really liked technology, it was always like the most bleeding edge things that I could get. And I got, I used to work with technology that wasn't publicly available because of some of the po folks who I worked with. So I was always looking for like the highest tech solution, the most um, bang for my buck that I could buy, but it was never really about value. But then I got connected with a company here in the United States um, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Sweetwater, and all they do is specialize in audio equipment. And so I developed a great relationship with a fellow out there who's my sales tech. I didn't buy anything from him for two years. I would just call and be like, Josh, I'm thinking about this thing. Is that appropriate? He's like, are you really at that level yet? Are you sure you need that? And then so he eventually walked me through some things that I could pick up for field recording for my studio. And so my equipment got better without really necessarily being expensive. I still use that same free open source software for most of my recording and editing. Um, the microphone that I'm using right now, even though it's discontinued, was like a $400 microphone that I got on sale for 99 bucks at Christmas. And it's just about making those right choices. The other thing for me is that, as I mentioned, when I first started doing the show, it was about writing my own permaculture education. One of the big things that's really changed for me is that kind of like my value statement now is about performing the best interviews that I can to help my guests share their story. And so as a result of that now, I wind up very often interviewing first-time authors, people who have never published before, who have never done an interview of any kind. And so like my role then is to kind of draw out of them their story and share it, while also then being a hub and a resource for my listeners, which is why in every episode I give my publicly accessible phone number, publicly accessible mailing address, a public email address, so anybody can get in touch with me at any time if they have questions. And I've had folks who are just having a bad day call me when they needed some inspiration. I've connected people with classes. And by putting my mailing address out there, I also, I one of the coolest things that I carry with me is that I have a five 
beer note, which is the currency of Ethiopia that a listener sent me one day as a thank you because they're in the Peace Corps in Africa. And every time that they're in town, they'll load up their um, music player with episodes and then go out wherever they are and listen to it. And then finally, the other third thing that's changed about the show for me is also being a community hub for the permaculture community because there are so many people who are doing this work differently. We have some great folks who are consultants who are charging, you know, real living wage kind of money for what they're doing. And then you have, you know, just a pair of partners who are gardening who want to teach some classes and don't necessarily have the resources to run a big marketing budget. So I will help cater to anyone at any level to get their message out there. And everybody, he's not just saying that. Again, having been around him and with seeing what he does for almost, I think it is close to five years now, he means that. He does truly do that. So that's going to lead to my next question because I've asked you this almost every time we talk. You've got to make a living. We all do. How do you monetize what you're doing? Because your, your, your podcasts are free. Uh, you just talked about how you make yourself so available. But you've got to make some money. So tell us some things that you do. To, uh, to monetize. One of, my, one of my good friends, Ethan Hughes, um, is at the Possibility Alliance and introduced me to this idea of the gift economy. And so 90% of my income comes simply from asking. And that's where you can see on the image that Mark has up, I just have a donate button on the website that if people want to, they can click to give. And I've had donations anywhere from $5 to $1,000. That helps. I also do have a Patreon page for the website for regular subscribers um, who can donate through that means, and as a result of that, they get some extra things from me. And then from a well, from time to time, you know, I do have some sponsors who come on, and we work together in a financial arrangement. But even then, many of my sponsors, I'm doing things in work trade or in kind. You know, somebody will send me a couple of jars of honey you know, to share some information about what they're doing. So it's really this broad gamut. But I'm fortunate because I, f I have a very big support structure, both personally and professionally, that allows me to live in the gift in a way that doesn't require a lot economically. So I'm running the show off of a little over $10,000 a year, and that's meeting my own business expenses, my health care, paying for the podcast, hosting site, all of it um, for those kinds of numbers. That is so awesome. You're living it. You're literally living what we what we all are teaching, where let's live appropriately and, and not necessarily have to make fortunes. And you know let me let's jump back just a second to just sort of the logistics. When you when you um, interview someone and you then edit it to come out with your podcast, what's the average amount of time that you actually have for an interview to end up with whatever amount you end up actually showing. And then let's go to some extremes. What's the most you've ever had to do? You know, did, did you have an eight-hour session sometime that you, you cut down to, to an hour? And then did you ever have anybody that you didn't have to edit at all or just very minimally? minimally? It's kind of <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you ask that because I'm, I just had this conversation with somebody earlier who's asking me to come in and do some podcast consulting with them to help them produce some podcasts for a new project that they're doing. It usually is about 10 hours worth of work per hour of raw audio that goes into it between um, doing the exchanges to figure out, to set up the interview proper, an hour to record the interview, 
because almost all of my guests, we always schedule just an hour. And it'll be a couple of minutes in the beginning where we'll talk about the actual podcast process and we can ask questions of each other and everything else. Then we'll record about 45, 45 to 50 minutes of raw audio and then have a few minutes at the end to kind of recap. And then after that hour, we're done and then I just go back to my editing process. And that's, I do three passes through an audio file. Once just to go through and remove ums and ahs and pauses just so I get something that's easier to listen to for me to edit. And that first pass takes about four hours. I'll do a second pass through it to remove some pieces so it flows better. That's usually two hours than just a final listen. And then to put my beginning and ending on and ship it. So yeah, it's usually about eight to ten hours um, to do an interview. There's, I believe... I don't remember his first name. I think it's Michael Nichols was my easiest interview. Um, and he's a fellow who goes and builds permaculture schools in Africa. And I just asked him to begin, and he just went. And every time that I would want to stop him to ask a question, he would answer the question that I'd written down. And so, like, I'm scribbling furiously to try to be able to guide the conversation as the host, and I never had the chance. I could never catch up with him, but it was a beautiful story. And it took me five or ten um, minutes more than the interview just to put a couple of things in the right places to let them go. Um, I generally do all of my own editing, but there was one piece where somebody sent me some audio clips for the person who they had worked with. It's um, Sean Chamberlain worked with David Fleming to produce Lean Logic and Surviving the Future. For Sean and I's Lean Logic interview, Sean sent me some audio clips that I had no idea how to handle. Um, to be able to cut them in and do some of the editing because I've never done that before. So I wound up sending those off to a listener slash friend of mine in Vermont who's an audio engineer. He handled all the editing for me, sent it back, and all I had to do was a single pass to make sure it was what I needed and ship it. But to your other question about the hardest ones is um, there are two that come to mind. One is Mark Shepard, who I know you know. Um, he and I did, we recorded, I think, four hours just back to back that then became three hours of interviews. So that was one of the ones that was like a super epic session, which took me a lot more editing to decide where to cut, where's the most appropriate place to go, which we just talked for a while. But the single hardest interview for me to go from beginning to end on was with Ramis Kent. Because of my interest in social permaculture, I'm interested in everything be a lot of things beyond the landscape. So I've been doing a ser an off and on series called Faith and Earth Care. So Ramis Kent is an American expat living in the UK who also practices Islam. And so I interviewed him to talk about Islam and Earth Care. But I had to ask some questions that in the end wound up being rather ignorant. And I mean that in the basic sense of that definition because I just did not know how to proceed with the mm -hmm. conversation. So we wound up talking for six hours over two days, and that six hours then turned into three hours then of released material. But our first two hours of talking were just me asking questions about some of the language um, of how he approaches certain things, what his experiences are as an African-American in the world so that I could have a, a place to connect with him about where we could go with some of these um, threads of conversation. But I was really thankful for that experience because it opened up an entire new world of understanding for me by having a guest who wanted to give back as much as I wanted to understand what he had to share with me. And I, 
I just walked away with so much though from that experience not only as an individual but also as someone interested in permaculture and how to connect with people because within um, Christianity there's that idea of treat others as you wish to be treated like that's the way that I was always raised but with what Rami shared with me is it's that um, within his faith practices that I want to wish upon my brother that which I would wish upon myself and just that little subtle distinction to be able to have those conversations that openness that I could take away that message from him by having a better understanding of him and his faith in the end by him providing all that time with me so <laughs> Oh, very cool. Yeah. Oh, that was great. And you, you're so you're so good because you remembered both those questions. You got to both. Mark, would you do me a favor? Pull up because I think you can search. Find the one that was the easy one. The one just to show everybody. Bernie Nichols. Is that right? Was that the name? Bernie Nichols. I think it's just the one that was Nichols. Uh, it's N I C H O L S. Um, but yeah, while we're talking, I can also find the episode number. And drop a link uh, into the chat. Because I, I got to tell you, everybody, that is hard. That that must have been amazing. And as you're sitting there, and you said you're scribbling down questions asking, he's just going through all of them. Meaning, as the person being interviewed, he would have had no idea that he was doing it the, you know, with this little um, need for Scott to be editing. So that was very cool. Um, I could talk, by the way, about social um, permaculture forever. We're not going to go into that today, um, but just just real quickly, let's let's just go back to on the spirituality side. Um, is there? And again, I do, I don't expect a name here and, and at all. Um, is there anybody that you've ever interviewed that? And this isn't just spirituality. That the the interview was so bad that you just couldn't publish it meaning not not the quality you just it just didn't feel like you something that you should do that it was going to be an antithesis of what your views and your values were have you had that happen or have you been able to avoid that i've been able to avoid that because i get to choose who comes on the show so there have been some folks who have been presented to me as potential guests who i just didn't have on um, because their subject matter or their material or something else just did not jive with who I am. Um, there have been a couple of interviews that went in some directions that I wasn't necessarily comfortable with. And so I may have, well, I know I've done this. I would pull back to a question and then in that case for clarity, do a little bit of editorial control so that we could have a combined message. But I would let my guests know that. You know, I'm that I wasn't comfortable going in that direction. Can we? Can I pose a new question to you, and we can continue from there? Well, and that, that way you you were able to handle it. Yeah. Um, let's go to Ethan Hughes for a second, just because yes. um, I I don't know Ethan, but I read the book The Unsettlers, and we had the great fortune of interviewing Christian Shearer last Friday, and Christian's a very good friend of mine. And yes. while we were prepping for that, I said, Christian, man, it, it was amazing to me how much the author of, of Unsettlers had to say about you. And, and that was awesome. And he said, mm -hmm. well, he didn't say hardly anything about me other than that I introduced him to Ethan. I said, no, Christian, have you read the book? And he said, no. I said, you need to read the book <laughs> because he probably talks about you three or four different times. And he feels like you are very important and actually 
even why he wrote the book, which was really interesting. So Christian promised me that he was going to get the book and read it. So um, well, I was but, talking to Christian this morning, and he promised the same thing because I mentioned reading Unsettlers as well. So <laughs> did did he know? Did you, did he know we were interviewing you today? Or did he say anything about that? I don't remember whether we mentioned it Friday. I don't think that I mentioned that. I told him that I had to make sure I was ready for an interview this afternoon, but no, I don't think I mentioned that it was with you. I didn't know that all three of us knew each other collectively. Oh. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and I asked him about Ethan. Have you kept up with Ethan? I think that there's at least a chance they're trying to make a move up to the Northeast. And Christian mm -hmm. said, I haven't talked with him in about in about six months, but he didn't know whether they'd been making any progress on that. So yeah, I just talked with Ethan two weeks ago um, because we're still—I mean, we're still fairly close—and I consider Ethan and Sarah and everybody there my friends, um, even though I've only been out to the, PA, the Possibility Alliance once. Yeah, I talked with them, and they're looking to try to, to expand their project. Um, and from—I don't know that it's—it's it's not public knowledge or that it's secret, but yeah, they're looking to move to a town in Maine. Um, that's a little bit more progressive than where they are in, in Missouri and have another go at it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what, let's, let's go back a little bit more personal now. I'm going to ask you mm -hmm. some things and I, I, and I think Mark and, and, uh, and Ariba even given you a sheet that I sometimes use. So this won't, shouldn't be surprises, but tell us about something in your youth that, that you can think back on now that that affected you that led to this interest in permaculture and why you've now made chronicling and, and educating helping people can you think of either an incident or something that that occurred in your youth the big there there are two pieces of that so I'll start a little bit earlier and go a little bit later um, the night before I graduated high school my godparents were not going to be able to stay for my high school graduation. So the night of my baccalaureate, they took me out to dinner. And afterwards, we were sitting in their living room. And my godmother asked me pointedly, what did I want to do with my life? Like, what, how did I want to manifest myself in the world? And I just told her that I wanted to help people. And that was really all that it was. It was just that simple. Um, originally, I'd wanted to study sociology and anthropology and understand human dynamics and group dynamics and how we you know, interact with one another and the things that make us human beings collectively. Um, of course, I kind of put that away because there was a lot of great money in IT at the time, the late 90s, that boom that was going on. So that's what I went off and did. And then it was actually through the disaster preparedness movement in the late 90s that, that took me to permaculture. I was working as um, an intern at a military facility preparing for Y2K. And so some friends and I were kind of, you know, what do we do to prepare for this? And at the time it was about, you know, having supplies and things like that. But it quickly broke down as we talked about it, that that idea of being like a rugged individual who's going to go back and live off the land, we knew we couldn't do it. We were too far removed from it. And so when I was looking for like community supported responses to disasters, I found the possibility, or sorry, I found... Um, Bill Mollison's Permaculture Designer's Manual. I found out information about the Permaculture Design course. And so I just dug into those ideas then and stayed in touch with them over the years. And then when I was looking to make a, a switch when my, my kids were born, everything just kind of lined up and I, I wound up doing what I do now. And I find that being able to bring permaculture to so many people fills that role, that question that I had for so many years. And it's... Um, 
I don't know if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs and being able to self-actualize and things like that. Um, I like the that idea of and being able to be take care of ourselves. But one of the other big pieces for me was reading Victor Frankl's *Man's Search for Meaning*, and that idea that if you have something bigger than yourself, it can um, continue to motivate you and give you passion and draw you through life. And being able to do what I do now just seems to be that calling. And the more that I settle into it, the more that I want to do more, and the more people I'm able to reach and make a difference for them. So, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Let's stay on that for a second. How are you? Um... How are you expanding your reach through your podcast, through through your work? Um, are, are you are you actively doing that? Do you do it somewhat passively, just by living your life, or are there any things that you do, uh, like do you do Facebook advertising, or do you do? You can't be doing a lot on a ten thousand dollar budget. So, but what what what's the ways that you are wanting to get the word about what you do out in the world a little more? The thing that's really making the most difference for me is going and covering events, going to convergences like the pictures that are up now are from Stella Lou Farm. They were doing a community uh, permaculture project. They're part of the School of Living, so the people who are living on the farm are leasing their land from a land trust, um, but then they're able to do whatever kind of growth that they want on the farm to build it. Um, but yeah, I just go to events now as my primary means to grow so that I can share more about what's occurring as well as having an opportunity then to meet people face to face and like I haven't really had to do much to grow the show since the beginning um, it just continues to grow fairly organically I watch my listener numbers grow episode after episode um, my download numbers continue to grow my Facebook interactions continue to grow all my email happens so I haven't really had to do a lot um, like direct marketing or anything like that I do find that the biggest the biggest thing that makes a difference for me was launching a newsletter. Having a newsletter and capturing email addresses and being in regular touch with my listeners makes a huge difference on the engagement that I get um, and just the interaction that I have with folks. So That's an interesting one. Let's stay with that for a second because I think that's relevant for us here. We are, through the economic action team, we're a... Um, recognized audio and visual content delivery platform mm -hmm. and we do have a mailing list everybody that is a member we have their names and information and we don't do enough in my opinion we don't put as much out there as we should in your newsletters of which I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm, if I'm a subscriber, at least I'm not seeing them. So maybe they're ending up somewhere in my promotions or whatever, but I'm not, not sure I'm a subscriber. How do you try, how do you interact in your, your written correspondence in either the same or different way from what you're doing in your, in your, um, your audio? My written correspondences are just like a personal update. Here's something that I'm working on that's of interest to me, and this is what I think about it, or here's someone who was on the show, so here's some additional information that you can find about, out about it. Just written more kind of as a, hi, how are you doing, blog entry meets newsletter, um, because I don't, 
I don't do any kind of blog entries or regular updates on the podcast. The only thing that comes out via the podcast website are the audio episodes. And I've just kind of stuck to making sure that that's all that happens there. And it's actually the feedback that I've gotten from the listeners for a long time was that they want the podcasts to be exactly what they are, in the space they are, that's it. That, you know, they can go into iTunes or Stitcher or wherever they capture their RSS feed to get the audio, and all they want to see is that list of episodes. And that's what's kind of branched me out in these other directions between like Patreon and the newsletter, is because people want more from me, but they want it in very specific ways. And so that's how I'm kind of like mixing and matching and blending to get that out there. I did have a team for a little while and had a newsletter writer who I would just kind of say, hey, these are the things that are coming up, and she was the one who was picking the topic and writing them. Um, and I really enjoyed that, and that was nice. But it's the show has since returned to just kind of be me doing my thing as um, a little nano corp of one. And so that's why the newsletters have turned into this kind of personal thing, because I can do something that's a bit more stream of consciousness and relaxed and easy to produce um, that still gets new material into my readers' and listeners' hands. But I'm only doing maybe two of those a month at most. Yeah, and again, um, you told me this before, but um, you you don't struggle with getting appropriate interviews. You, you, you're you're even backlogged, right? Didn't you? you told me not too long ago? You you basically got your list for the next year, so. Yeah, I'm currently my release schedule is done through the end of the year. I have the last couple of interviews that I need already scheduled that will get me through 2017. I have a backlog of potential interviews. I think at this point I could release a new episode every day for at least five years without having to repeat anybody or struggle to get anyone. So I wind up recording in blocks usually four times a year. Um, like once per season, I'll just set aside like two to three weeks to do a whole bunch of interviews. That sets the tone for the next three months of releases. And then um, a couple of weeks before I need to record some new interviews, I'll go through the list, see what books have been released, what do I have that's recent, and kind of pick what the narrative's going to be for the next few weeks and just go. So. Is, there any, is there any speaker out there, any leader, teacher, coach, that you would just love to have on that you have just not been able to connect with? I wish that I could say that, but the one that I was trying to get, I just scheduled an interview with last week, and that was Joel Salatin. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And awesome. But part of that is, though, is that my thing oh. is that I'm not really interested in, as a producer, as an interviewer, most of the people who are out there headlining events and everything else are not the people I'm looking for because they don't need me. But at the same time, I want to draw things out of people to get a different story from them because I want to get at the roots of who they are. I don't want somebody to be on pitching. I don't want somebody to be on the show who has the same story to tell. Um, and I've had a couple of folks who were on the show that were, you could hear that interview that they had with me anywhere else. It was kind of canned, canned and delivered. Um, I could only draw so much out that wasn't on message. And so because of that, that's why a lot of those folks who are out there who might be the ones you would think that I want to have on the show are not directly interesting for me because they're already out there. But it was only through interaction with my audience. They're like, we want you to talk to Joel, but don't ask him anything about farming. Nothing to do with his writing or anything else. Ask him about what is it like using media to share your message. And I was like, oh, well, that's a perfectly great topic that I don't know that he's necessarily 
thought about or engaged in in a way that hasn't appeared anywhere else. So that gave me like an idea for this interview and that was what made me actually do it. I was deciding whether or not I was going to say no to the publicist not to do the interview with Joel Salatin because I didn't know that I could do anything interesting enough. So you found a topic that would be good. Yeah. And actually, um, gosh, I was hoping you'd say Joel and that you hadn't gotten it because over the last, since we even talked, I developed a good relationship with him and I, I, I would have been able to help. I was going to try. How about, I'm going to bring up a specific name and I'm only using it as an example, but, and then there's a context for my question related to it. How about somebody that's incredibly visible? but not as a permaculturist. They're visible because of their life, but they wouldn't probably even use the word. You wouldn't hear it very often. And, and here's the name I'm going to think of, Bernie Sanders. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, and obviously his, pop, his, his, not popularity, let's not use that, his uh, celebrity, because he's certainly a celebrity, is because of something completely outside, politics, obviously. Mm -hmm. But is, is there anybody that is not, probably from day to day associated with permaculture that you might want to. And I'll give a couple other examples. Um, Brad Pitt uh, in the entertainment world, who is not an easy interview, by the way, and I've heard that from many, many folks. And, and Brad actually used to be on my board at the Institute of Economics, not mine, but when Dennis was running it. Mm -hmm. And I think I could get Brad if I really worked hard at it, but I've heard that he does not like to do interviews. And yet Brad literally does live a permaculture type of life. But, so I just used two names, but I wonder if there's anybody like that that you'd really like to have that maybe you have you know, top if, of your head. If I were going to go to that level, the two, two people who come immediately to mind are Al Gore and Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. Like if I were going to go right. to that kind of a level because of the work that they've been doing. And the big yeah. one for me with, with um, Leonardo in particular is because he has expressed in some of his interviews and other pieces that he knows that the lifestyle that he lives is one of means that by going around and doing the speaking and things that he's doing that it does more damage than if he was someone who's just off living on his own and so it's because of some of that awareness is the space that I'd want to dig in with him and the other one is also John Stewart because since he's retired from the Daily Show he's now running a farm in New Jersey and that's only like three or four hours for me so I'd love to go out and like do one in person um, but yeah, but someone like Bernie Sanders or even like Elizabeth Warren, who's also someone of interest to me because of her work with economics, my audience truly runs the gamut from the very far left to the almost alt-right. And so as a result of that, there are certain conversations that I just don't have um, within the political realm. And someone like Bernie is a little too far left for my audience. I can talk left or right leaning anarchy all day long and my audience doesn't seem to care but when I start getting into the more mainstream political realm it's it's not a spectrum it's more of a horseshoe and if I get more to either end of it that's where my audience starts to push back so that's really interesting so maybe you've done it could you interview Ted Nugent Ted, Ted Nugent because Ted would clearly be way out there on the right although Jack Spurko's way out there on the right I mean literally so it, yeah um, well, and Jack's been on my show in the past, and he was actually a really easy interview. Um, I personally wouldn't interview Ted because I, I personally can't handle him. 
like my own personal line of things, I don't know that I could get in the right headspace to do it. But I could certainly probably have somebody like like him on the show if I felt that we could find um, a common line of conversation. By the way, Mark, stop, uh, Mark, stop that slide for a second. Um, this is very, we're watching these slides here. This is changing yeah. gears. One of the things cool about a live interview is that you can take it all kinds of directions and, and your audience doesn't really mind. Um, what, wow, Michael asked a question. I'll get to that in just a second, Michael. Um, these newspapers, that is a great idea for be lining a pond. And I didn't, I wasn't watching the, the, uh, the pictures earlier. Was, was he worried there about some sharp objects coming out and penetrating? Um, or I'm sure they're going to be more here. Um, mm -hmm. was, is, are we going to see something that he puts even as an additional liner over those newspapers? Did you, do you know? Did you follow what he was doing? I, close I followed this project when I was there. And this is actually, I think, like the second or third attempt, pardon me, to seal this. We never got it to seal. We tried dozens, oh, wow. like a half a dozen different messages to seal it, and we just couldn't. But this was one of the methods we, we were trying to do. It was, if I remember right, this was a, a Glay method where we were using newspapers to kind of line it to form a base um, and an initial seal, and then it was filling in with a bunch of mud and other things then to eventually put plants in it. That um, yeah. but, you know, we, we were never able to get this quite where it was supposed to go, and it wound up becoming a more like a vernal pool. There are some swales in this property then that would guide water into this, fill it up. We could get some water-loving plants um, growing there. But yeah, we were never able to seal it to make it permanent. So this is perfect. I have a question. And I actually know this viewer. And I was going to ask this question in our interview here sometime anyway, but I'm not, this leads me to ask it right now. Michael Everhart, and he's not going to mind me calling him out, is a guy who has come out of of um, a variety of different things, um, and and in the I'll call it the, the the high finance world, and is now moving and becoming um, economic, becoming regenerative, restorative, all, all those kinds of adjectives. And here's that he asked this question, Dr. Wayne, what is permaculture? And and then he says, sorry for being so green. And I don't think he means green in the sense of green environmentally, but green being raw. So now I'm going to I'm going to change the question to you, Scott. What's your definition of permaculture? For me, permaculture is an ethical system of design that allows us to take care of the earth, ourselves, and each other. <laughs> but design is important to me because it's I there was a while where I felt that permaculture could be considered a lifestyle and I know some people who live it that way but for me I feel that it kind of removes some of our systems thinking from the process that it's easy to kind of settle into living a certain way without stepping back from it so even though I'm a permaculturist and permaculture is a huge part of my life, I'm reminded that I'm always using those tools and techniques to design really everything that it is that I'm doing. From the choices that I make on something as simple as a cell phone. And what cell phone am I going to buy? Because like, you know, we have flagship phones now that you can't change a battery in. Well, if I'm going to use technology as long as possible, I want something with a replaceable battery that can be repaired. And so all of that really for me does come from the ethics of permaculture, 
which um, originally was to take care, that we take care of the earth, that we take care of the people upon it, and at the time it was about limiting population and consumption. Now as we've, as permaculture has grown, that third ethic of limiting population and consumption doesn't really work for a lot of folks, as I learned from some, from some of my friends in the Jewish community. Limiting population pushes back against some of their um, religious tenets, so can never be adopted by some of those communities if we talk about it that way. So it's become more about that we want to consider how can we ensure that resources for the earth have been shared. Um, not only with the people who are currently living, but to make sure that they're available for future generations. Which for me, I think it's a perfect segue to talk about August 2nd was Earth Overshoot Day, where we have used up all the resources that are available that the Earth can naturally regenerate in a year. We use those up this year on August 2nd, and now we're going, you know, we're depleting the resources for future generations. As a parent, and as a family member for folks, that's something that I think about all the time. What am I taking away from my children? Um, and that's one of the reasons, like for me, I know plenty of people who practice permaculture who will go out and use a five-ton excavator to put in swales or to dig ponds. To me, I would rather use my own human labor from food that I buy from farmers and others, even though, yes, it is back-breaking work and harder. I don't want to use those fossil fuel resources so they can be available for my children in the future. Because if I've been able to use them, if my son or daughter wants to run a chainsaw and use appropriate technology that uses fossil fuels, I want to make sure that some of those are available to them. Um, so those are some of the decisions that I make in designing my life with permaculture. But it's originally the word permaculture um, was a contraction from permanent agriculture. But over time, the, the agricultural issues that we were engaging in really to me the landscape is solved it's easy to grow food if we have a will in a way there are enough people who can who know how to grow food that we can feed everybody but it's looking at the social issues of like food waste in america we're wasting something like 30 percent of our, our food in the market never goes to a consumer because it's either too ugly to go to the grocery store or portions in a restaurant are too large so we have leftovers that never get eaten so it's like how do we solve those kinds of issues in talking about like how I live economically with this uh, financially low on that kind of totem pole, um, how does that then free up other resources? How can we look at economics differently to allow people to live more intentionally? Where are the places, like even with me talking about my workstation, my all, my, all of my audio gear at the beginning, what is the right value of what it is that we're doing? Um, and finding that, and it's I can point back to Ethan Hughes and then Dave Jackie, the author of Edible Forest Gardens, um, two of my friends and mentors. Dave Jackie introduced this idea for me, and this picture right here that just pulled up, just as a quick segue, this is actually from, this is part of a field where my children grow and play. This is at their mother's house. And on the left, um, kind of in the mid-ground, is a willow that I planted to help dry out some of this ground here. And then it's also back um, in the middle of this picture, there's water that will rise up and flood this yard several times a year. And so I started planting willows then to help capture some of the debris that comes through. Because where this yard is, is at the turn of a creek. And we've actually had full-size trees float through this yard. We've had diapers and dressers come through. A four-wheeler rolled through here once during a flood. And so I'm planting this field then in order to capture that debris so it doesn't go into this stream because that stream feeds the Susquehanna River, which feeds the Ch Chesapeake Bay on the East Coast. So I have my little restoration project here to help take care of the earth by capturing that dirt and debris. Um. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so let's stay with design for a second. 
Yeah. D define design and, and, and in your own context. So you, and let's even use the example you gave of the cell phone with a, um, with a rechargeable battery. Um, does design for you mean that, that it's something that you're getting, and staying on that example, you're mm -hmm. going to do enough research to find out whatever's available to you out there, and my guess is you're not going to buy new if you can buy used, possibly. And so you're going to look for what might be available. I, I get confused personally with design sometimes because as a scientist, I think of design a little bit more as something that I maybe did six months ago. And man, if I haven't updated it, I've still got to kind of live by the design that I did previously. Well, but I don't like that element of it. And so now I'm going to have to go back and redo my design again. So. I, I I get I get kind of um, constipation sometimes from design and it it, it, it bothers me. <laughs> so, well, the place where you go take with... us through the context of design and and let's even use that cell phone example. Well, let let me back up just a moment because where I was going before I started talking about the landscape there for a second and that landscape design was that what. Um, with Dave Jackie and Ethan Hughes, Dave Jackie introduced this idea of espoused values versus governing values. The things we say we care about and then the actions that we take that show what we care about. Um, and so I was running with that for a while and what I was always trying to make it so that my espoused values and my governing values matched. Well then talking with Ethan one time about this idea, he mentioned the idea that that gap between them is our integrity gap. Um, and so what I'm trying to do every day is narrow that integrity gap, and I do that by using permaculture, by asking myself, like, what service is it, um, what service does what I'm doing have for the earth, or to myself, or to the other people around me? Now, when it comes to something like a cell phone because of technology, to go with that example, I use, tend not to buy used because of the small package and everything that's represented. All of those resources are going to be degrading um, immediately. I don't know how somebody else took care of it, if they left it in a hot car or something like that. Um, but usually what I wind up that doing is buying something that falls into that flagship class. Whatever the latest phone is from a particular manufacturer, because I know that the hardware is going to be the highest specs today, that it'll run for three to four years. And I've had a smartphone for nine years now, but I'm only on my second one. <laughs> My current phone is four generations behind because of choosing things that are, are high-end, having a battery that's replaceable, being able to make decisions about the software that I'm using. Um, but I, I, if in my perfect world, I wouldn't have a smartphone. But because I travel a lot, it's my GPS. It's a camera if I need it. I've recorded interviews on my smartphone. Um, so even then, it's like choosing the right pieces of technology that meet my needs. But I even in making that decision... I would not go out and tell somebody that like this phone that I have is the greatest thing ever. It's what you should buy and it'll take care of all of your problems. I'm going to be asking people, what do you use a cell phone for? How often do you charge it? You know, and start guiding people through these kinds of decisions so that they can make the right decision with where they are um, and what it is that they're doing. In order to, so awesome. that they can personally narrow their integrity gap. And it's I mean it's the same thing with like vehicles and things like that. I have a I'm driving a 14-year-old minivan with 205,000 miles on it. But from like a financial perspective, it doesn't make sense to replace it yet because keeping it running is less expensive than a car payment. At the same time, by running that vehicle for many, many miles means that I'm using less resources, um, even though it may be less fuel efficient. I don't need a new vehicle to be built for me right now. 
even something in the used market. I'm not taking something from the used market just because I got tired of running my, my minivan, you know? And even though there was a time where I wanted to burn every drop of gasoline available to go fast because of driving sports cars and muscle cars and still loving that, I can get the same kind of of enjoyment out of something like that. Like if I just wanted to go do like a track day somewhere and pay a few hundred dollars to, to drive a sports car on a track or go out with some friends of mine who happen to have some fast cars and maybe we'll go to a, a sporting event and drive. You know, finding ways to still meet those emotional needs and things. Um, but doing it in a way that is is resource conscious for myself, the earth, and others. By the way, I have not had, I don't believe in, you know, now over a year of doing these, and I don't even want to think of the total number that I've been sort of hosting over the last year. It's it's over 400, I know that, but it's a big number. I've not said this one, but it really hit, you know, that difference between a, um, a lived a lived ethic and an espoused ethic. This is a real fun one, so tell me if you've heard this. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your talk talks louder than your walk talks. No, I said it the wrong way. Darn it, I screwed it up. Your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Have you heard that one before? <laughs> I can't say that I've heard that one, but I can definitely agree with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'll, I'll slow it down for everybody else. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks, which is the same sort of same situation as that ethic that that uh, you were talking. I loved how the difference between those two is integrity. That's that's great. What a great comment. By the way, I, I we also interviewed a guy a couple of weeks ago now, Chris Serles, who has a company called Biointegrity. Mm -hmm. And I love the name. And when I asked him at first, so you must have bought that URL 20, 10 years ago, I said, oh no, I got it just about a year and a half ago. That's kind of shocking to me that the, that the URL biointegrity.com was available from GoDaddy for 10 bucks a year and a half ago. You would have thought somebody would have owned that. So yeah. Um, well, we have about 10 minutes left, everybody, a little bit less than that, and we want to be real respectful of Scott and of the time. Um, and so if you've got questions, if you wouldn't mind, throw them up into the Q&A. Michael's made a bunch, several other comments, way too much waste, and, and that was great. And then here's he said, he said, I want that. It was after your description of uh, what, uh, what your definition of permaculture is. He said, I want that. And then he says, teach me in my farm to be a permaculturist, Dr. Wayne. <laughs> so, Michael, we will definitely try our best to help with that. And I know that if you go and, and listen to Scott's um, Scott's any probably any one of his episodes you're going to learn even more in that way. Yeah. Um, so please, guys, throw some questions in, and I think it's a good time because I'm going to have at least one or two questions at the end. Scott, is there anything that you would like to say that's just right now on your heart that you'd like to get out to this audience? And these are people who, in this economic context, are trying to make a little money, making people on the planet better, and a little bit broader sort of a term. If if you're interested in making the if you if you're interested in creating the world that you want to live in, I think that permaculture provides a lot of the tools to do so. But that the way to really experience permaculture is to learn a bit about it, learn about those ethics, learn about some of the principles, and then apply it wherever you are. 
there's this great line, I interviewed the architect Bob Tice years ago about natural building and how to restore, like, restore and renovate the places where we are. And he says that you know, we don't need to go out and inflict ourselves upon a piece of land that doesn't need us. And I think that the same thing goes a lot with permaculture is a lot of people will learn about this idea and they immediately want to go farm or become a designer or a teacher. And I go, are you an accountant? Apply permaculture to your accounting practice. You know, if you're a lawyer, how can you practice law in such a way to help permaculture folks? Like that's really the place to take these ideas and do it because there's, I mean, there are a million niches about all this. And if you were to just take these ideas, apply them where you are, and start sharing those ideas with other people, you know, go to Blogger and get a blog, start writing about it, start talking about it, go to workshops, go to a permaculture convergence and talk about what you're doing as a non-traditional permaculture practitioner and share it with people. Because there are tons of folks who are doing this um, in the landscape already, but we need more people to fill those other niches um, and be to become more... Um, there's Diego Footer who does Permaculture Voices introduced this idea to me of cooperation. We need more people doing that with each other, where we're cooperating and competing with each other in this space so that we can get better. Um, and just to start filling some of those spaces that right now go underserved. So by the way, everybody, if you don't know it, what he said was incredibly relevant because in a lot of industries, the fact that that Scott's doing permaculture podcast and Diego's doing permaculture voices, which is, a, which is a podcast. That the two of them would be competitive. Well, they are, but they're cooperatively competitive, and that is something we just continue to teach here at Eat. Which is, mm -hmm. gosh, if we can collaborate and we can cooperate, we can be synergistic. Which the old adage that you know two strands put together are way stronger than, than two alone. Three or four put together are just infinitesimally more strong. And so that collaboration and that cooperation. This is a real quick question. Why did you pick the picture that you have here on your contact page? Is that, does that, uh, that building have some significance to you? This, that picture is of the granary at, um, oh, Salamander Springs Farm in Kentucky. And it's Susanna Lane runs this farm, and she's a woman who practices the Three Sisters style of farming combined with Masanabu Fukuoka's um, style of natural farming. And she was just the first permaculture practitioner whose farm that I visited and really just kind of had my mind blown. And I just, this was um, the first time that I ever taken my photographer with me, and he was so interested in the farm that he was following Susanna around and just gave me his camera and wandered off. So he was one place, I was another, and this was just a farm where in many ways my life was transformed, and this picture was one of the first ones that I ever took at like a professional level for myself. So, it just it, yeah, cool. most of the pictures on the site have a lot of meaning to me, and that was one of them. Well, I thought, I thought it would. That's why I was going to ask the question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Did you guys get that? Cooperativism, really, really neat point. Um, so talk about a little bit here about convergences. I know you've gotten, you've always been active, but even more recently, you're getting very active and not just participating. I think you're doing some organization, you're helping. Right. And tell people what a convergence is. A convergence is the like permaculture-specific language for a permaculture conference. And they're held, usually a lot of countries will have a national convergence of some kind every other year or every few years. Then you have the international convergence 
is every few years. The last one was in Cuba, the next one will be in India, and then we'll have regional convergences. And yes, I've helped now to organize two different convergences here on the East Coast. One was the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence held in West Virginia, uh, which is one that I'm directly an organizer for. Then I also helped to kind of plant the seed and answer a lot of questions for the Pennsylvania Permaculture Convergence, which was its, had its first event this year. But the idea behind those is really just to bring together a lot of different presenters on various ideas, along with people who are interested in permaculture, anything from novices to long-term practitioners, to get us into one space, not only to kind of increase our education and our knowledge, but also to meet the people who are out there. It's one of the big things about being a permaculture practitioner is because it's been so singular for so long, is that many of the people who are practicing, maybe they have a farm or they're doing something in an apartment or a small space, we just don't know each other. So these convergences are great ways for us to find out what's going on and get together um, and get to know one another. Awesome. Well, we have about three minutes left. And again, get your fingers typing, everybody, if you have questions. Um, and um, Michael says, why is it that hemp can be used to create everything, yet the U.S. imports 12, 6 million tons of it? But, well, again, that's another. We'll talk about hemp at another time, Michael. Um, <laughs> and there's a, there's a, actually one of our speakers we've had previously, uh, Andrea Herman, who is um, very heavily involved. You might want to go back and listen to that replay, anybody in the audience that, that would like. Um, I'm going to end with this question because it's on the line that, you know, I just remembered Andrea Herman. Um, what was the name, what is the name of Susan, Susanna Lean's farm again? Uh, Noah asks. That is Salamander Springs Farm and it's in near Berea, Kentucky. There are two Salamander Springs Farm. One is Susanna and hers is, I'll put this in the chat window. Um, let me, that should be right. While Scott's typing that, um, remember, guys, this is only this is the first of 12 sessions, live sessions this week um, that you guys could possibly attend. And I'm going to pitch one other really live, really great live one, which is Friday with um, Chris Powers, who has become a real amazing young leader and teacher and speaker in the area of um, of indoor agriculture of uh, controlled environment. So you would enjoy that, I'm sure. Um, and so everybody, um, you can see that that uh, Mark's put up here a picture of the convergence that uh, that occurred in 2014. The slide is up. So you, did you type that in, Scott? Yes, it's in the, it went through the chat window. Awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, everybody. Um, you guys have been awesome as an audience. I can't imagine how amazing. You, you need to go back and listen to this again. Um, even if you were here live, you're going to get more cool stuff out of it. I just love being around people like Scott who truly, you heard this in his from his gut earlier, he cares so much about those three elements that he described, which is the planet and himself and, and those around him and others, how his actions interact with all of those. He really does. And I know that he would enjoy you guys coming and listening to his his sessions. Um, and and again, remember he he kind of survives by the the sort of pay it forward approach. And uh, and so anybody who can do anything to help support him um, financially, I'm sure that would be very um, very well received. Also, 
Um, Mark, do you have any questions for Scott to finish up here? Mark usually mutes himself because he's got some background noise. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing what uh, Scott's been doing uh, in the permaculture world, and I really enjoyed this webinar. So, yep, everybody should watch this again to get everything, um, um, get a whole understanding of what he has done. Well, thanks, Mark. Thank you, Scott. Any last words, Scott, before we sign off? If you have any questions after you see this or listen to it, even though we've got some information up there from the website, my email address is show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Feel free to email me there. You can also give me a call, 717-827-6266. It's a Google Voice number. reaches me wherever I am. If you want to leave a message, I'll get back to you. That's always the fastest way to get in touch with me. And, yeah, there's my, my mailing address, the Permaculture Podcast, PO Box 16, Dolphin, PA, 17018. And I'm more than happy to answer any questions you might have, whether it's about your farm, what kind of choices you're making moving forward, or if you want to learn more about permaculture and get involved. And Sandra just put in a last-minute little type, um, thanks, it's been really useful to listen for tips on a blogging community permaculture performance and train travel project that she's about to launch in September. So you, I'm sure he means it. Get a, get a hold of Scott and, and tell him about that, Sandra, and then you can, you can possibly get some more info. Well, I'm going to be really faithful to time here. I have right at the top of the hour. Thank you again so much, Scott. Always fun. By the way, Scott and I had talked, I think, in, in like May, and he said, I'm going to have a little window in July and so in August. And I was thinking, oh, man, we missed it. He's already gone back. to. But, Scott, thank you so much. Um, Mark, thank you for helping. Areeb's jumped off. He's got other things to do. Mark, why don't we jump on our little uh, our, our call, our staff call on Skype right after this, just for him to end that. And, Mark, why don't you stop recording, and we'll sign off. Hey everybody, I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.